Welcome to Public Enemy Number One, The Police Whistleblower. I created this series to not only educate you on my case as a Canadian police whistleblower, but also to educate you in general about why police officers choose to not come forward when they witness something that they know is wrong. My story begins in 2016, when I felt I had no other option but to go to my police services board with a disclosure of internal wrongdoing. What happened then was immediate reprisal for having done so. I'll explain all of that to you, and I'll explain how in 2017 I resigned from the profession because I believed that the best way for me to make a difference was from the outside. At this point in time, in 2023, the police service has now spent over half a million dollars to try to get me to stop talking about them. You know, you'd think as a police service, they should be out in the community fighting crime. And I'm not some drug or human trafficker. I'm simply a police whistleblower trying to educate lawmakers on why the laws need to change to protect future generations. My initial disclosure in 2016 was about how police are allowed to investigate themselves for domestic violence offenses. I thought it was wrong, and I thought that too much control and autonomy was given to the chief of police to decide when to or when not to even investigate one of his members accused of domestic violence. So before we even get into this series, I want the listener to know that I will be discussing domestic violence in general terms and potentially even sexual harassment or sexual assault. First and foremost, you need to take care of yourself. If you think that these topics are going to be triggering, then as much as I want you to be a listener of mine, it would be best if you don't listen. I also know that a lot of my listeners will be those who have experienced moral trauma or institutional betrayal from policing. And again, a lot of the things I'm discussing are going to be triggering for you. So your choices are to either buckle down, find a safe, comfortable place to listen, but make sure that you have a way at the end of the podcast episodes to let out some of that stress. So let's get started on this journey together. I'm going to start off episode one with some general information, and I'll take you back to 2016. In early 2023, I created a website called policeversuswhistleblower.ca. It's literally policevswhistleblower.ca. And the website outlines everything in my case going all the way back to 2016. Public documents are there to be viewed because, as I've said, I do believe this is a matter of public interest. And as long as the police service is spending your money on these matters, I believe you have a right to know what's really going on. So let's start by talking about whistleblowing. I personally believe that the term whistleblower is being a bit overused. And I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings when I say this. I don't want to negate any attempts that have been made by others to try to right wrongs. But I personally define whistleblowing as something where an individual sees something, witnesses something that has nothing to do with them. Um, and what I mean is it's, it's a matter that they believe is a matter of public interest. So it's not a personal interest. It's not the same as when you report that something was done to you. Whistleblowing, in my opinion, is when an individual sees something, they believe that it's wrong, and if they were to ignore it and not do anything, it wouldn't have any effect on them, other than a conscious effect. So obviously, you might not be able to live with yourself if you don't report something, 
but it wouldn't affect your individual safety or security. And I, I want to do this in this podcast because it, I think it's that much more important for the public to understand that when somebody is coming forward about an issue that they could just ignore, those are the people that we have to protect. So if you think back to a lot of famous whistleblowers, they, they found out that something was happening. It might have had a greater public interest or public safety implication, but they could have simply turned a blind eye and just ignored it. Behind almost every whistleblower are dozens, if not hundreds, if not thousands of other people who saw the same things and did nothing. I'm not suggesting that somebody who reports something happening to them cannot become a whistleblower. And I'll give you an example. Angie Rivers is a police officer with the Waterloo Regional Police Service, the same police service I worked for. And she came forward with allegations of sexual harassment. Throughout the course of her case, it was identified that the issues that she was facing were allegedly systemic. Several other women came forward and joined her, and they filed a class action lawsuit in 2017. The class action actually becomes a part of my story, and you'll hear more about it throughout this series. But that's a perfect example of somebody who initially might have simply been a complainant and became a whistleblower once it was alleged that the problems were systemic. I make this distinction because it's important that we understand that whistleblowers are looking out for the greater good. They're not just hoping that the way they're being treated will, will end or you know, that somebody that did something to them will get in trouble. It's always a bigger issue and it always involves the public interest. I think the best place to start with my story is all the way back to 2010 when I was hired by the Waterloo Regional Police Service. One of the steps in the process is an interview with some senior members of the police service. And one of the questions they ask, I'm sure they ask everyone, is why do you want to become a police officer? Well, when I was asked that question, I mean, there was no doubt in my mind I was going to be honest, but I also knew that they had access to police records of other police services. So I explained to these officers that the reason I chose to become a police officer at the age of about, I think I was 31 or 32, it was a second career for me. But the reason I decided to become a police officer was because I had had an experience with a police officer when I was a civilian. I had accused a police officer of domestic violence and been involved in quasi-investigative processes. Um, I say that because I'm not even sure if there were real criminal investigations that happened. Um, but I explained to these officers that I had made allegations against a police officer and I had witnessed how that allegation was handled. Um, I witnessed how they do internal investigations on themselves. At one point, I had a detective tell me that um, his investigation warrants a criminal charge and arrest, but he didn't want to do that to us because he knew that we also had to go through the family court system. So it, it was, the message was sent to me that there's a lot of discretion. And when it comes to police investigating themselves for domestic violence, they can really do what they want. Um, and that was why I turned to even consider policing as a profession because I thought that's wrong. More people need to get into the profession that know that that's wrong and make a difference. It shouldn't be that way. Um, police, you know, swear an oath of office that they're going to do their jobs impartially, objectively, and according to law. So it doesn't give them the right to choose when to and when not to enforce our laws. 
I was very clear with these officers that I was going to be one of those people that got into the profession because we're the ones that the profession should welcome. They must have liked that response because I was hired and I started at the Ontario Police College in January of 2011. Now, unlike a lot of other police officers, my career did not start very regularly. About six weeks into my training, I was involved in a traumatic incident on the outdoor shooting range. The incident did not involve me directly, but I was immediately beside an individual who almost lost his life. I will tell you more about this incident later on in this podcast series, but what you need to know was that in 2011 when this happened, there was very little done to help us with our mental health. We had a mandatory debrief at the Ontario Police College, but beyond that, everybody just wanted us to forget about the incident. The patch of concrete that was stained with blood on the outdoor range was later replaced with new concrete, and everybody went back to their police services to start their careers as police constables. I found it very strange when even my immediate supervisors at my detachment didn't know that I was involved in that incident. I felt like I spent the first couple years of my career informing people around me about what happened in case they started to notice changes in my mental health. I was smart enough to know that that incident could have an effect on me at some point in my career, but I started to believe people when they would say, it was just a training accident, like what's the big deal? So I started ignoring some of the early warning signs of PTSD. Like all police officers, I started my job in general patrol, and it was the best job there is. Because every day was exciting, you never knew what you were going to encounter, so it was like an adrenaline rush on every shift. Some shifts were boring, but then you started to appreciate the boring shifts because some were just, you were on your feet all night, running from call to call, storing up all your notes in your book to do two or three shifts of report writing. I did truly love the profession. And I really spent a lot of time in my community getting to know people and doing proactive initiatives. Because of my previous experience in banking, I did gravitate towards large-scale fraud investigations. And because of that experience, I did a mentoring program in the fraud branch, right before I was promoted to be a use of force instructor in the training branch. So around the middle of 2015, I was sent back to the Ontario Police College to complete the use of force instructor course. Up until this point in my career, I wasn't really experiencing any signs of PTSD although it was always kind of in the back of my mind. But the moment that really shocked me was going back to the Ontario Police College and standing on that same outdoor range. And when I saw that freshly poured square of concrete, it was like all those memories rushed back. I started having nightmares. I started having midday flashbacks of the incident. And as 2015 ran on, I started to feel depressed. I started having anxiety issues. And I didn't know why. I remember I went to my doctor's and just sat in his office and cried, and I just told him I didn't feel like myself and I didn't understand why. When I look back now, it was classic PTSD, but at the time, it didn't make sense because it had happened so many years before, and I felt like I had managed it and dealt with it. I wasn't diagnosed with PTSD at that time, but my doctor did put me on some antidepressants to try to deal with the depression. Now, around this same time, there had been two fairly high-profile cases of a criminal case against a police officer where our police service did the investigation ourselves. Um, I was paying special attention to these cases because, as I mentioned, I had been involved in an incident with a police officer who was investigated by his own service. 
So I already knew how things were being done at other police services, but I was now even more curious to know how my police service was handling those types of investigations. Because of these two high-profile cases, I started asking around and I started making some inquiries on my personal time. I came to learn that things really were no different at my police service. When an allegation was made against a police officer, it was really up to the chief on how to proceed. I learned from one of these officers that the only way he could get any of the exculpatory evidence on record was to go through a complete criminal trial. And just to pay the lawyer the retainer that they required, he probably would have bankrupted his family. One officer did take his case all the way through criminal court, only to be ruined financially and be acquitted at the end of an eight-day criminal trial. Not only that, but the judge emphatically acquitted him, questioning the police investigation throughout her ruling. By early 2016, I had been made aware of four separate cases that were domestic in nature, which were all handled differently. It really didn't seem like we were applying the laws impartially or objectively to our own members. It really came down to who you were, whether or not you were liked or disliked, and then different statutes such as misconduct or the criminal code could be weaponized against you to eliminate you from the job. I had witnessed enough in a period of about eight months to know that things were not right. We were not doing the job that the public expected of us. We were not enforcing our laws objectively and impartially. Now, if you're sitting here now wondering, like, who really cares, Kelly? Like, really? Who gives a damn? Um, it's important that you understand that police officers are two times more likely to commit domestic violence than the average citizen. Having already been on the receiving end and filing a police report against a police officer for domestic violence, I did pay closer attention to this issue. It was my personal view then, as it is today, and whether you agree with me or not, I don't believe that police officers should be afforded any higher level of discretion than members of the public when they're accused of domestic violence. I have always believed that police should not be allowed to investigate themselves. But in Canada, we have something called the mandatory charge policy when it comes to domestic violence. What that means is that police are not allowed to afford discretion. Police aren't allowed to say, you were accused of domestic violence, but I'm going to let you go today, Bob. They can't do that. If there are grounds to arrest, they have to arrest. And these protections were put in place for victims and families. So I had a real issue with the fact that when a police officer was accused of domestic violence, we weren't treating them the same way as we would a regular citizen. So when all of this really started to concern me, the first place I went was my association. Police associations are basically police unions, and they're the only ones that can really speak on behalf of a police officer without getting in trouble. So the first place I went was my association. I basically said to them, you know, why am I the only one here that's concerned with the way the police service investigates their own people? It was very surprising to me that after only about five years working for the police service, I had an issue with this when I was surrounded by people who had been there for decades and just told me that this is the way it's always been. I was actually told by my president at the time, he said, who do you think you are if you think you can change it? It has always been this way and it's always going to be this way. But that wasn't good enough for me. Yes, I'd only been a police officer for five years, 
but I'd been a tax-paying citizen way longer. And I did still have expectations of police as a member of the community. I wasn't so indoctrinated into the culture to believe that police should just be allowed to do whatever they want to do. There are laws in place that limit police conduct, and I did feel as if we were going beyond those limits. We were abusing our authorities when it involved a member of the service. We were really doing whatever we wanted to, regardless of what the law said we had to do. So I started looking at ways that a police officer like myself could address an issue I thought was a systemic problem with policing in Ontario. When I looked to our laws, there was nothing there. I mean, if I wanted to complain to the Office of the Independent Police Review Director, I had to be a member of the public. Our laws at the time actually prohibited me from making a complaint to the OIPRD. It said, if you are a member of your service, you cannot complain if the subject of your complaint is a member of the same service. And the police service itself had a complaints procedure, but it very clearly stated at the beginning of the policy that only members of the public can file complaints under that policy. I really felt like I had nowhere to go because I felt that this is how it was intended to be. They did not want police officers to be able to complain about things internally. If you don't have the support of your union, you are on your own. But I was passionate about protecting victims of domestic violence. I did have the knowledge and education to know that domestic violence is an epidemic. And because of those things, I couldn't let it go. So what I decided to do in May of 2016 was book a, a vacation day on a Wednesday so I didn't have to work. I requested to be a delegate at a police services board meeting and I was put on the agenda. They wanted to know what I was going to talk about and I didn't want to give too much away because I knew that if my chief knew what I was going there to discuss, he would use any means available to him to prevent me from speaking to the board. Now, you have to understand that the police services board is the first level of oversight. They are legislated to oversee the operation of the police service. They're also legislated to monitor the performance of the chief of police. So in this case, I knew that the only information the board ever received about anything was filtered through the chief. They probably had no clue how internal investigations are conducted. I haven't mentioned this yet, but the police service didn't even have a policy on how to conduct an internal investigation. Not once had they ever even defined a conflict of interest during an internal investigation. So I believed in 2016 that if the board was made aware of what was going on, then maybe I could work with the board and we could establish policy to prevent this sort of thing from happening again. On May 4th, 2016, I attended the police services board meeting and shared what I knew with members of the police services board. Now, going into the meeting, I had read the board bylaws and I knew that board members had the ability to go to an in-camera session if they felt that what I was discussing was, you know, confidential personnel matters. So I took my 10 minutes and I spoke. And not once did any board members request to go in camera. They let me speak publicly for the 10 minutes that I had. At the end of the 10 minutes, I hadn't finished the information I had prepared. I didn't quite speak fast enough. But there were, there were about four or five paragraphs I didn't get to and I was cut off. Nobody asked me any questions. Um, and I didn't even realize that the media were in attendance because the room was fairly empty. But there were two women at the back of where the staff usually sit. 
And at the end of the meeting, they both came up to me after and, and one of them said, are you some kind of whistleblower? And that was kind of the beginning of my journey as a police whistleblower. I had not gone to that meeting to address the media. I went there to address the police services board. And as I said, I didn't even know the media were in attendance. But there were a couple of articles printed about my delegation. And it's pretty clear from the content of these articles from whose perspective they were written. One of the articles said that I criticized detectives of the police service. But the articles didn't really capture the reason I was there. I was there because of the lack of policy. I was there because of the decisions being made by, by my chief of police and how I didn't feel that we were following Canada's laws around domestic violence when we investigate our own people. I believed then, as I continue to believe today, that these were matters of public interest and they needed to change. So if you can imagine the level of anxiety I had building up to that day, as I walked out of that boardroom, it was like a two-ton weight had been lifted off my shoulders. I felt a huge sense of relief for having shared with the board what I knew and what I believed was wrong. I know I sound incredibly naive now, but I legitimately believed at that time that the board would want to sit down with me and engage in dialogue in hopes to affect some positive changes. Yeah, I know, I, I can say that without laughing, but now that I know what I know, it is absolutely laughable that I was that naive. So I didn't know what to expect right away, but I came back to work the next day and nobody really mentioned it. Nobody asked me any questions. So it really seemed like a lot of people didn't know what had happened the day before. But I came to work and for about a week, I just continued to do my job training officers, writing training programs, evaluating use of force reports. Until May 9th, which was almost a week later, I was asked by my boss to escort her to the professional standards branch, which is like the internal affairs division at the police service. At that time, I was sat down and I was served a whole bunch of papers. One of them was a chief's directive. And the chief's directive was that I was no longer allowed to directly train members. I was relegated to administrative duties. I was told that I could not reattend a police service board meeting to address the board without the chief's permission. And I was put under investigation for misconduct. The chief had alleged at that time that I had committed two counts of neglect of duties, two counts of discreditable conduct, and two counts of breach of confidence. Now, as I said a little while ago, and, and this is an important concept for you to understand, the way police services work is that everything that happens within the service, whether it's operational police matters, internal police matters, all of it gets filtered through the chief before it is disclosed to the police services board. So this is where there is a major conflict of interest in Ontario laws specifically. I can't speak to other provinces, but the, the board is in a position to oversee the performance of the police chief, but the police chief gets to decide what information is disclosed to the board. So after receiving all of this paperwork, I went home and I sent an email to members of the police services board. And I did this because I knew that they weren't going to receive a memo about the discipline I was now facing. They weren't going to be informed that I was facing this retaliation by the chief. I needed the board to know that retaliation was taking place as a result of my disclosure to them. 
Now, another thing you should know is that members of police services boards also swear an oath of office. Their oath of office is to do their jobs impartially and objectively and according to law. So when I sent my email only to members of the police services board, the chief should not have been made aware. And I'm not ashamed of the content of that email. My email to them basically said that I came to you in good faith with this disclosure, and I was now facing reprisal at the hands of the very person I reported. I found out about two weeks after that that my email had been shared with the chief, and he was now accusing me of two additional counts of misconduct and placing me on an absolute no-contact order with members of the board. It's hard for me now to take myself back to 2016 and into that headspace exactly. But if you can imagine, I was effectively silenced. I was gagged and I was relegated to a desk in the basement of headquarters. I tried to reach out for help everywhere I could. I filed complaints with all of the oversight bodies about the conduct of my chief and board members. My association wouldn't help me because I was on a day off when I made my delegation to the board. It didn't matter that I had effectively put myself back on duty to address systemic police issues. They were considering it an off-duty matter. I tried filing a human rights complaint, but the police service effectively had it deferred, saying that they wanted to proceed with the misconduct investigation first. I filed an internal workplace harassment investigation, but that investigator seemed more interested in my personal life and who I was dating at the time than the actual substance of my complaint. As 2016 came to an end, I was really feeling hopeless. I was really feeling like there was nothing out there that was going to help me, and I had effectively ruined my career by speaking up. The one little glimmer of hope that I had in the fall of 2016 was when I attended a public information session hosted by Justice Michael Tulloch. Justice Tulloch is now the Chief Justice of Ontario, but at the time, he was seconded to conduct an independent police oversight review in Ontario. His job was to look at the efficacy of our current oversight bodies. So his mandate didn't extend into looking at other issues in policing, simply how could we improve our currently existing oversight bodies. But one thing that I brought to his attention at this public session was how we don't have mechanisms to hear from police officers about internal problems. We have all these mechanisms established for members of the public to complain. But essentially, it seems that the system wants to keep police officers quiet about what goes on inside a police service. This really intrigued Justice Tulloch, and we even had a face-to-face -face conversation after the public session. He asked me to send my submissions directly to him because I had previously submitted them through the general email. But he was very interested to know what I had experienced and what I knew about the subject. This was the first time that somebody other than myself said these problems are important and they need to be addressed. And this was what really ignited my flame even brighter to keep fighting for what I knew was right. In Ontario, police services only have six months to proceed with a misconduct investigation once they've served a notice of investigation upon a police officer. In my case, that six-month window had come and gone and there had been no action taken against me with this misconduct investigation. Now remember, I knew that I had not committed misconduct. 
I had not accessed information through police databases, and I had not disclosed any information obtained by me in the course of my duties. The fact that they wanted to charge me with neglect was just a joke because that was what I, I was accusing them of doing. I was accusing them of neglecting their duty to act impartially and according to law. So I was eager to see this misconduct investigation proceed, but they were dragging their heels. And at that point, I started wondering how long they were going to do this, simply to grind me down and make my mental health issues even worse. After about a year of this treatment, in May of 2017, a $167 million class action lawsuit was filed against the Waterloo Regional Police Service. The lawsuit was filed by representative plaintiff Angelina Rivers, who I mentioned earlier, for systemic gender discrimination, sexual harassment, and sexual assault. It was filed on behalf of current and former female members of the police service. So this was the first time I was given a choice. I knew that I could stay employed, join the class action, and wait out my misconduct investigation and everything that would happen as a result of that. But don't forget, I also knew that my chief could operate in somewhat of a bubble. You might hear people refer to the police misconduct process as kangaroo court. And that's exactly what it is. The chief was going to appoint a prosecutor in my case, and he was also going to appoint a hearing officer to oversee the hearing process. I would be at the mercy of my chief during this entire process. And remember, my chief was the one I reported to the police services board for the decisions he had made. So remaining employed and joining the class action lawsuit would help me address issues of gender discrimination within the police service, but it wouldn't allow me to address the whistleblower retaliation I had faced. You already know the choice that I made, but I'm going to save that story for the next episode. Please stay with me on this journey of public enemy number one, the police whistleblower. We'll pick up next time in June of 2017. 